You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the network, its advertisers, owners, or sponsors. Coming to you from Podcast Detroit, it's Heard, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Heard is a collaboration between the Hungry Dudes, Nick Drinks, and the Detroit Optimist Society. Each week, we interview industry professionals about issues related to food, beverage, and hospitality. Please take a moment to subscribe to Heard through the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, SoundCloud, or however you subscribe to your podcasts. Write a review and let us know what you think. For additional content, including awesome videos and photos, visit HerdPodcast.com, like Heard Podcast on Facebook, and follow at Heard Podcast on Instagram. We appreciate your support and hope you enjoy this week's episode of Heard. Hello, friends, and welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. I'm Joe Hakeem, and I'm flying solo tonight, hosting the show. Nick and Jason are both out, and Vato has been out all semester because he's in class. But I do have a special guest, the project development manager from Western Market in Ferndale, Jared Guild. Hi, Jared. Hi, Joe. How are thanks. you? Good. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So, Jared, I want to start talking about your place of employment, Western Market. You guys opened in 1983, so you're going on 35 years. 35th anniversary this year. That's awesome. You guys are an independently owned grocery store. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, 35 years independently owned. That's pretty damn impressive. Um, kind of give a background of what Western Market is for those the uninitiated. Uh, so Steve and Tony Salvaggio, uh, related to the Salvaggio family, worked there when they were teenagers. Uh, wanted to get a strike out on their own. And in 1983, they were able to get this building that was already a grocery store um, and renamed it Western Market. And it was uh, kind of a meat and produce, you know, really, really classic Italian meat and produce style market with a garden center outside. Uh, and I came on uh, 10 years ago now, um, 2008, uh, after a couple years at Whole Foods and took over the wine set. With basically no experience, no experience taking over a set, or no experience in wine, or uh, both. No experience in wine, really. Okay. So, um, I had been beer buyer at Whole Foods and worked with a lot of really cool people over there. Um, and my my friend came over from Whole Foods and said, "Hey, you know, they need a wine guy." And I said, uh, "Sure, that sounds great." And um, then Steve was out for six months uh, for, for a health issue, so I was sort of like left to my own devices to figure out how to buy wine and fill this kind of brand new setup. It had been about six months. They had been selling wine before I got there. Did, did you have any wine point of view at that point? You know, I had bought some cheap Spanish stuff, as people in their early 20s do. I was 23 at the time. Um, and uh, I, I got a really quick start, though, because I met some really great people, uh, a lot of which are now industry, you know, either had, were industry professionals then or got into the business. Like uh, Evan Hansen from Selden Standard, you know, I've been drinking wine with him for almost 10 years, and Todd Abrams, who was over at uh, Eli Fine Wine in Birmingham. And uh, most importantly, that was Putnam Weekly, you know, uh, and if you're a wine drinker in Detroit, you've probably run into Putnam at some point. 
And what does Putnam know? Putnam works with you now, doesn't he? Yeah, Putnam had works at the store as of uh, last year. And, and so is, is that his main, like, does he like, kind of back you up on the wine section or is like, what, what is his role? It, it's great because early on, um, I always wanted to kind of have a co-buyer, um, even when we didn't really need one, because it's really important to be able to check yourself. Uh, when it comes to these things, you know, you, you want to buy wine, you want to buy something that people like that's exciting for them, but you don't want to buy just what they ask for. You know, you, you want to find something new and exciting. And so um, I had Lewis for a number of years and I was drinking wine with Putnam and a lot of these other people from around town. Uh, in fact, Dave Kay from the Detroit Optimist Society, yeah. I uh, uh, drank wine with him a long time ago and um, it really gave me a lot of perspective right away. And so now he's the co-buyer with me. So him and I, Putnam. Um, yeah, okay, yeah. So 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 Putnam is my co-buyer, and we um, uh, bounce a lot of ideas off each other, and we have similar, you know, tastes, but different enough that we disagree on something every week. So oddly enough, uh, I was the beer buyer at Trader Joe's many years ago. So you you have this, you, you kind of your segue into uh, it was beer. Um, the beer section at Whole Foods is drastically bigger than the beer section at Trader Joe's. What did you have to learn? How long were you the beer buyer at uh, Whole Foods? Because it's just for one store, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was the um, Somerset store. And I had started in produce and was like, oh, specialty is a good team. You know, uh, coffee, beer, wine, cheese, olives. And I moved over there and um, cut cheese and ran the olive bar and all that kind of fun stuff. But um, when that opportunity to beer buyer came up, it was great. So I'd only done that for maybe a year. And you learn a lot about, so I guess what I'm trying to lead into is like, what did you learn about beer that helped you learn about wine? Oh yeah. Um, you know, uh, that people are willing to take a chance and try something new. These were not necessarily the early days of craft beer in 03, but it was still a growing segment. Um, how to balance, you know, people's expectations, um, how to make things familiar, how to make it relatable, you know, take someone from being a, uh, a Stella drinker to a Bell's Lager Light, you know, or um, Lager of the Lakes mm-hmm. or Shorts Local Light or something like that. And then moving them into pale ales and then into IPAs and then into stouts. And um, that's actually where I got my taste for sour beer and Jolly Pumpkin. At Whole Foods. Yeah. 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 So that was like a, a whole thing. I was like, oh, wow, there's whole other sides of beer that uh, most people never even talk about. So the... I noticed, I mean, recalling what I had at Trader Joe's is you have a very limited amount of ordering potential. You have certain beers that you can get and that's it. You can't order outside of your list, right? I imagine at Western Market, the whole world of wine is at your fingertips as long as it's available in the state of Michigan, right? Yeah. And I mean, we probably have more wines that are not available in the state of Michigan than anybody else. Um, We work with a lot of importers uh, and, and producers and get their wines brought into the state. Um, either to become available for everybody or um, a Western Market exclusive. Uh, we probably have a thousand wines, and I would say at least a hundred of them are not available anywhere else in the state. You have a thousand wines in there. Eh. It's, it's not. It's not a huge section. It's like one one half of an aisle, right? Yeah, it's it's nine metro racks. So there's probably seven hundred bottles on the wall, and then like only three hundred like stuffed, you know, in the bins and on displays wow. and um, hidden behind other bottles. That's sort of a Western market trademark there. So you have to dig deep. <laughs> it might be faced A, B, A, B, A, you know. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's there's, interesting. Yeah, there's, there's, there's whole set. Well, there's too much exciting wine to buy, right. you know. Uh, it's really hard to pass up when you trace something exciting 
and you want to support it and you want the wholesalers to buy exciting wine. So then I got to buy it. And then I you know, don't know where to put it. So when you started there 10 years ago, what was the wine section like? Um, you know, it was a really good base. It was uh, basic and it was exciting to take over a set that wasn't very old because there was no like, well, I've been buying this wine here for 20 years and you have to carry it forever. Like we, we didn't have a lot of that. So I could just sort of the wine wasn't good. I could kick it out and there wasn't anyone to complain about it. Uh, but it was nice that we weren't like a startup where I had to do every single thing I could to hustle for a dollar. You know, like we had business. There were people coming in the door like the the rent wasn't paid by the wine department. So it was this perfect mix of um, uh, freedom, you know, from from immediate economic pressure like an only wine shop might have. Uh, and but not the autonomy of having to carry a grocery store set, you know, like I. So, but there also is a budget in mind, right? So you can only have so much invested in wine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, uh, you know frustrate tony once in a while with some <laughs> some some big buys but uh the, the nice part now is that we've really proven ourselves you know uh uh the the, the wine team and the grocery team because it's, it's it's not just me it's a lot of people that put a lot of work into it uh but we've proven it to be uh, a real money maker and the store is busier than ever um and the the clientele is more diverse and more excited and you know um excited to spend money like it's weird it's not like you have to be like oh i have to buy this people come in and are like oh chocolate cheese wine coffee like all right i feel like the trajectory of like your excitement like being that you started in wine around the time you started working there kind of is mirrored in the section is that yeah yeah the set's really grown over the years um as i learn about things you know uh, i remember when our italian set was a lot smaller because italy is really hard to learn about so we didn't carry a lot of Italian wine because I didn't really know it that well. Um, but the set's, you know, uh, gotten bigger, gotten more interesting. Um, and it's not just like me learning. It's like me getting excited about it and then telling everyone else in town about it and then coming and buying it. You know, because I can buy all the exciting wine I want. But if I don't sell it to somebody, you know, if there's no audience for it, then we can't keep doing that. And that was my next question. So how, how do you sell these kind of exciting wines to people? that may not have the same knowledge that you have? Um, a lot of it is about being user-friendly, but not compromising on quality. So I like to carry something to answer every question. If someone says, you know, I like Chardonnay or I like Merlot or, um, I, you know, I, I want a nice sweet wine. Um, some wine shops are like, oh, no, we don't do that. Like that's, that's, that's not what we do. And I went to a few of those places when I was – 21 and 22 and it like turned me off a little bit from like kind of getting into it. I was like ah, I'll stick with beer this is a little bit more user friendly I kind of know what a what an IPA tastes like and the it's not that easy in wine at least you know the the, the cool things it's not uh, what's written on the label is not enough you know and so um, I was fortunate to, like I said to, to meet some really cool people start drinking with Putnam get into like French natural wine and from there the set has just been able to grow um, I, I also looked in the market for areas that other people were neglecting. This was uh, c- kind of a, a clever move, I guess. Every other store carried a ton of Cabernet. And there's this idea like, okay, well, maybe I should just carry a ton of Cabernet. That's what you know the store down the road does. But it's really hard to take those customers. I was like, wait a minute. Nobody's really doing this kind of French wine, uh, not nearly as much German wine. 
you know, we're the first store I know of in, in the area to stack, you know, leaders of Austrian wine, you know, le- leaders of Gruner Veltliner and Zweigelt when they were 12 or $13, you know, a, a leader. And people didn't know what it was, but it'd be like, you don't need to know what it is. You got me. I tell you it's good. So drink it. It's a steal, too. It yeah. was a steal back. Was, yeah. I don't know if it still is 12 or 13 bucks. Yeah, but they're hold, 15 to 18 it's now. It's still a steal. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, those are incredible, like, values. Um, which I think, you know, to your point is like someone has, you have to build trust, which I think is something that, um, especially at an independently owned store, it's something people are willing to do. Um, whereas at like a Trader Joe's or a Whole Foods, there, there might not be that same trust built because the, the, there is turnover there, maybe not as much as a larger store like Meyer or Kroger, but there still is turnover and it's hard to run into the same person with the same excitement. Um, because nine times out of ten, I can go to Western Market. I can find you there. Yeah, well, that's that's pretty good odds. I would say not everyone can find me nine out of ten times. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty good at hiding, but uh, it's yeah. I, I like to make it. Um, it can be really intimidating to shop there sometimes because there's a thousand wines and you recognize very few of the labels, and it's sorted strictly by geography. Um, so if you're looking for Chardonnay, you know it's in three or four different shelves around the store, and you know so some people are frustrated, but. I think once you get going, if you just put a little faith into it and like, well, I'll just try something. And and I don't – it can seem rude at times that people ask me for a certain wine and I'm like, I'm not going to put that on the shelf. Like I'll, <laughs> I'll get it for you and your taste is fine. But I don't want to like, you know, make someone else think that this wine is good. So um, we, we try really hard to keep like a, a certain quality standard that you can just – grab something and it's probably going to be good. So are you saying, and, and I don't want to like read into this too much, but are you saying that for all thousand, you will vouch for all thousand bottles that are in your collection? They, they all have a place in the market. Okay. And, and again, it's, it's about making a set that is shoppable for people young and old and rich and poor. And, you know, from, from all different backgrounds, people that, you know, grew up drinking Reuniti in the sixties oh, yeah. or seventies, you know, uh, to, or, or Manischewitz to people that, uh, you know, watch action bronson and and know about natural wine when they're 21 or 22 years old those lucky kids these days <laughs> well yeah and, and that's kind of so kind of the research that i was doing was watching this action a little bit of the action bronson series which is where he goes to france you know lucky him and is able to go with these hang out with these winemakers go to these great restaurants one of the things he says in the first episode is about natural wine is this shit is special like that, that was that's his quote about natural wine which is pretty simplistic but it's it's very heavy in its meaning because one of the main points he makes and i think this is important considered not just for wine but for groceries as well is the producers that make natural wine take a lot of care in the wine that they're making and the the kind of large larger point is that you can kind of connect this bottle to a person yeah exactly um and, and a lot of times like you know these kind of large scale operations winemaking operations you, you have no idea where the hell any of it came from yeah and i mean there's there's pros and cons to industrialization in a lot of areas and in wine uh, it really brought the quality floor up um i mean i didn't drink uh cruddy wine in the 60s and 70s but there was apparently a lot of it you know uh just just really cheap mediocre you know it'll be watery or it'll be really sour or it'll be um infected with bacteria and it, it just doesn't doesn't taste good and you know by the late 90s into the 2000s like all that was kind of gone you know most wine these days is d- decent even even the cheap stuff 
uh, as, as a jumping off point for most people. And then how do you stand out from that when just being competent isn't good enough anymore? And so uh, having a special relationship with your land uh, is, is a key part of that. And we do a lot of terroir-driven wine. Uh, which overlaps with the idea of natural wine. I'm of the feeling that you need to grow organically uh, or biodynamically or, you know, very clean and holistic with living soils and uh, a a diverse ecology uh, to make interesting wine. So you you just use, you use the words organic and biodynamic. Okay, mm-hmm. so we and we said natural wine. So those are three, and then there's conventional is what the right. rest of it would fall. So are those four different types of the way? And how does biodynamic and organic fit into natural? Um, so I would say to be natural wine, you have to be organically grown. Okay, uh, and that's not like a super strict like uh, if you have to spray once every five or ten years, something that would disallow you from being certified organic. You know, hey, this is someone's farm and livelihood, which is which is always important to remember too. That this is like someone lives here and does this and grows this and picks this, and like just because it didn't come out the way you're looking for doesn't mean it's not good. You know, it's it's a lot of work to make even wine that comes out to be mediocre. <laughs> so so I, I definitely have a respect for the producer, no matter what, and but more so for the people that want to be a little riskier and commit to uh, foregoing some of the uh, uh, chemical magic that's out there. And does the desire to grow natural wine or or to produce natural wine, has it come out of like the desire not to breathe in chemicals and not to shorten your life? Like is there there any connection between the Oh, I mean, absolutely. And that's actually the the biggest part of why I'm a proponent of uh, organic food and organic wine overall is that I don't want someone else to have to get sprayed with poison so that my blueberries or my wine is marginally cheaper. It's it's not worth it. You know, I don't want to destroy the soil. I don't want to pollute the rivers. You know, as a secondary effect, it's healthier for me, I guess. So that's cool. But like I, I'm more concerned about not poisoning farm workers. That's, that's a big deal. So so is natural wine usually a little bit more expensive? Is that? Um, you know, it's it's in line with something that's made by an artisan. And so okay. there's all kinds of like artisanal wine, I guess you would say. You, you could have uh, industrial on one side, which mm-hmm. is large, made in a factory, maybe made in a monoculture, um, a lot of machine work in the fields, um, a lot of spraying by a schedule rather than um, uh, you know spraying as needed uh-huh. you know, uh, or, or not at all or finding other ways to fix whatever issue your vineyard is having. And then let's say you have artisan products and there's, you know, a really messed with techno artisan wine. And that's a lot of that uh, high end California world or, or a lot of high end wine from all over the world. It's that they, they, they uh, I think they call it Vin d'Excellence, you know, might be the fancy French way of saying instead of, you know, Vin Naturel is that it's like it's the winemaker putting a lot of work into making something taste good. Um and I just don't think that's that interesting. You know, I, I think all the tools and tricks are just not as exciting as, you know, um, l- growing grapes that are uh, uh, not necessarily native, but uh, well adapted to your area. Mm-hmm. You know, that uh, you, you don't have to manipulate the water level or the, uh, uh, you know, um, spray for mildew and stuff. Like, like well, some stuff needs dry areas. Don't try and grow it in your 
wet, soggy vineyard, you know, and then have to spray for a mildew four or five times a year. Like that's just don't do that. Right. You know? So so it starts with there and being conscious about what you're doing and growing the grapes carefully and then not messing it up in the winery. To be so, honest, that's that's one of the biggest things is don't don't do more than you need to with the grapes with the grapes. Yeah. yeah. Um. So so we have been drinking one to start here and. One of the things that I do at Western Market, I do in general now, is instead of looking at the front label, I look at the back. Um, and this one is recognizable by me. It's it's a Louis Dresner, uh, which, well, explain what Louis Dresner, who Louis Dresner is, and what that portfolio. As he's an importer, correct? Is that? Yeah, yeah. Louis Dresner has uh, really been an important part of my life. Uh, it was a an important part of. Putnam's life, or still is an important part, uh, where he had drank all of this conventional wine. He was a a big time wine buyer from Merchant of Vino back in the day. Louis Dresner. Um, I'm or sorry, Putnam. Putnam. Was. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> sorry. And 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 he bought all this, you know, conventional regular wine, and he just got burned out on it. And there was a year that he only drank beer. And then um, I don't know quite when it was, maybe twelve or fifteen or eighteen years ago, so somewhere in there. Okay. Uh, he met Joe Dresner, and he was like. Oh, wine makes sense again. And like Joe was one of the first people to like bring him like natural wine, you know, wine made by artisans. Uh, in this case, this is um, uh, Maule uh, with a Rosa Massieri. And I've been selling this wine for six, seven, eight years. I don't know, uh, quite a while. It's grown biodynamically and it's actually mostly Merlot. Uh, it might be Merlot and Cabernet. I can never quite remember because honestly, that's one of the less important details. I, I don't. It's less important what it's made of. It's more important, you know, uh, well, one, knowing the care that went into it and then knowing the kind of like uh, sensation you're going to get out of it. So the one thing I noticed about the the vast majority of these Dresner wines is that they're challenging. And when I say that, like when I smell this, it's funky. It's it's not an appealing – it's not necessarily an appealing aroma, but it's one that I expect from these wines. Um, Is this something that you – if someone comes in to, to, to Western Market and, and picks this bottle out, do you is there a warning that happens beforehand? Or what? how do you get them ready for something, a smell like this, and then like the whole experience of what a bottle, opening a bottle like this is like? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, to, to speak to that, there's like this idea of like natural wine and there's just a bunch of funky, dirty wine. And that's what natural wine is, is that it, it has a um, – uh, Britannomyces character, um, that that funky horseman, which which this has a little bit of Brett to it. And what is and what is Brett? Uh, Brett is a wild yeast that imparts a different set of characters than the average Saccharomyces yeast. And it can be described as like horse blanket or barnyard, um, or just funky. And too much Brett can overwhelm anything else interesting about the wine. Uh, but in in a little dose like this, it's lively and interesting and adds to the complexity. Uh, so, so within natural wine though, there's study that like, which is kind of one thing. And I, I would step it back and say, there's like a huge amount of wines, some of which are considered natural, some of which aren't that are grown organically. Like a lot of really great traditional estates, um, high end special burgundy and stuff will be grown organically. Won't use a lot of sulfur. Isn't using, um, uh, mechanical techniques to improve the wine or a bunch of additives. So, 
then there's this area that I would call like natty wine. And we don't really have a good term for it, but that's what I think, where it's like a subset of natural wine that is like funky. And a funky wine. But not like natural light, like the beer. Yeah. Natural. Yeah. No, <laughs> no natty light. Just, just natty, natty. wine. And, and it's, it's funky and they get cidery sometimes and they can be, um, uh, bizarre or, or spritzy when you open them or have a whole lot of um uh sediment in the bottle uh and it's just one one part of wine i don't i don't i certainly don't hate those wines i actually like those kind of wines a lot but it's not like the only thing i would ever want to sell and i can see how that covers up the terroir sometimes the, the the sense of place you know so i like my wine to tell a story and be from a place and that only story like, like it can't just be one story of like Oh well, it's funky, like that. Like the, <laughs> that gets old. So yeah, there's there's a technique called uh, carbonic maceration that comes up a lot in, in natural winemaking where it's a whole cluster. They take literally the whole clusters of grapes, um, and put them in a tank, and sometimes put CO two in there or or dry ice, uh, and the wine kind of ferments very deprived in oxygen, and so you get these really bright primary fruity flavors. Um, and they're cool tasting, but, you know, carbonic is not particularly expressive. So I like it when a winery does like maybe one or two carbonic wines. Like, hey, this is our light, fresh. Um, Beaujolais is known for carbonic okay. maceration. Right. So, so, so it's not just the Gamay grape that gives it that kind of lightness a lot of times. It'll be a carbonic maceration that, that gives it that extra uh, primary fruity kind of flavor. Uh, but then I also like when I see something more serious out of them. And so, so on this Maule, this wine, um, I don't think it's an incredible like sense of place, it, but uh, it, it's Italy to me because it's natural and there's a very big like slow food movement, slow wine kind of movement. And this fits really into that, that it tastes like a real farmstead product. But I couldn't tell you like the kind of soil it's on or something like that, uh, where other higher end wines that they make come from a single vineyard and you can learn a bit more about uh, the, their area. And so, w- when you're ordering from a portfolio like this, like the Dresner portfolio, do do you fall back on their rep- representation to tell you the story, or do you? Is there some some way to learn more about this particular? Using this one as an example, like, yeah. I mean, we we do a lot of different things to learn about wine. We uh, taste at the store. On a pretty regular basis, we have winemakers that come and see us. We have wine reps that come and see us. Uh, we rely on importers a lot, like Louis Dresner or Selection Massal. Um, we have a new importer called Selections de la Vigna that's coming in uh, that I'm super excited about. And so we trust them. And then we go to shows out of town. We go to Chicago or New York. In fact, uh, last weekend, weekend before, St. Patrick's Day weekend, okay. uh, Brian and Putnam and Alexis and a bunch of other people from Detroit uh, went to Chicago for a show called the Third Coast Swap, and that was really cool to see. You know, probably twenty people from Michigan make it worth their time, and, and all industry people uh, uh, drive out to Chicago to meet these producers, including someone from um, Maule, uh, and and taste their wines and, and learn about them and connect with the growers. And so, I mean, over the years, I've met hundreds and hundreds of winemakers, and it's been hugely influential. And I try and pass that. Uh, experience on the consumers the best I can through uh, reading about them online, uh, just spending time with the wines, uh, li- listening to them, you know, and and express uh, the passion of the grower to the consumer. 
So let's. You have a you have a can of wine you brought with you too. Um, I'm interested to hear about this because this is this seems to be maybe not the opposite of the Dresner, but but it seems to be a uh, a conflation of multiple different trends, right? Yeah, yeah you, you you are right there. This is kind of the opposite of natural wine. Uh, it's it's a rosé spritzer with hops and grapefruit essence in it. Okay, and it comes in a can. And it's called Foxy. <laughs> So you've, uh, oh, wow, it's, it's, it's pretty heavily carbonated. Yeah, it's, it's a bright pink. I'm pretty sure it's force carbonated. Whoa, it's, uh, it smells like grapefruit. It smells like squirt kind of. Yeah, th- this is kind of a, a, a fun experiment. So Field Recordings, who uh, is one of our favorite uh, California producers, uh, this guy Andrew Jones, um, he got his start because he was selling nursery stock and going around to vineyards, and this old guy would be like, Oh, I'm going to tear out all this old Carignan and put in, you know, Merlot. And he'd be like, no, 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 I'll buy that fruit. And so he he found too much cool fruit, you know, in some of these old, old vineyards that were maybe not financially viable anymore, but he was willing to pay a premium for the uh, fruit. And so he's part of this new California movement that's making just really interesting wine. Um, not the kind of 90s, 2000s style California with a high alcohol, high oak. Um, stay away from that, make, make fresher, livelier wines, but still with that sunny essence of California. And so we carry um, actually every wine that he makes um, that's available in Michigan, we carry, including four or five can wines. And then this is a collaboration with uh, Hoxie Spritzer. So Hoxie in field recordings makes Foxy. And um, yeah, very much not a natural wine, but from people that understand what makes wine good and exciting and sort of deconstructing it and just making something fun and casual out of it. This is really, this is, Exactly what you just like fun and casual. Like this is something that like I you could slam this, which I, I mean, you know, maybe you don't want to yeah. convey that message, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's definitely like a, like a summer patio pounder beach wine. And I like carrying stuff like this too, because um paying attention to a lot of niche audiences uh, has made the store really eclectic and people that don't need to find that rare thing appreciate having the odd things. So in this case, this is gluten-free, and it's a nice beer substitute. It doesn't really taste like beer, mm-hmm. but it works like beer. It's fizzy. It's got a little hops in it. It's fruitier, and it's tangier, and it's brighter tasting. But uh, for people that can't drink beer, this is a pretty exciting substitute. So let, let's move from wine for a second because you know your, your, your title indicates that you do more than just wine, right? So what else do you do at Western Market in terms of the rest of the store? So my title now is project development manager. Um, so I run projects, including a new point of sale system, remodel, stuff like that. Um, I oversee the grocery department. Uh, I've got a really great grocery staff right now. Um, so that means the grocery department means what to, to someone that might not know about grocery stores? Yeah, it, it, really we call it the provisions team now. So uh, it's you know all the packaged food. Okay. So everything that's not produce, prepared foods, or meat. Okay. So it includes dairy, specialty cheese, coffee, chocolate, nuts and candy, um, beer, wine, uh, got sake. And so we, we've been able to bring out a lot of really fun programs over the years. Uh, I definitely think we're one of the best places in town to buy coffee. You know, uh, it, it seems like a lot of places are think it's more important to have a lot of mass produced options. And, OK, here's here's a, a local roaster. 
Well, every coffee we have is a local roaster. I think the farthest away coffee or, or biggest company we've had in years would be Intelligentsia, which is oh, wow. from Chicago yeah. and not that big. Right. You know, uh, but otherwise, Great Lakes, Ash, um, Madcap, White Pine. Uh, so it's a, it's a really cool set of coffees. We sell everything whole bean. We keep it all really fresh. You know, if the product's not going to turn, we're, we're not going to keep stocking it because, you know, you need really fresh, good coffee from from your roaster. Um, so that's an exciting area. Uh, chocolate. You know, um, we buy whatever good Michigan chocolate we can get, and we're buying from all over the country now. We have Fine and Raw, uh, Ritual, Fresh Coast, good stuff. And, you know, just doing these, like, deep dives into areas, and it it doesn't always make the most sense to spend a ton of time on it. They're not our biggest selling areas, but uh, as people discover them, they get really excited about them. So it sounds like you're taking the same care you take with wine with the rest of the groceries that you bring into the store. Yeah, yeah, and I mean it, it can't all be exciting, you know. We got to stock cornmeal and sugar and basic stuff like that. But uh, probably four or five years ago, we moved into uh, natural food being our our main thing. So gr- groceries a funny world. It's it's a very unique business, and when you're inside of it, it, it looks totally different. So we, we buy from what we call the natural channel suppliers now. So so we're in the independent natural channel as as they call it. So we buy from the same company. Uh, mostly as Whole Foods and Plum Market do, rather than stocking, you know, Craft uh, and General Mills as, as our main brands. Um, moved into at, at least natural that, that that nebulous term, you know, it doesn't really mean anything, I guess. But free from artificial colors and flavors, um, uh, and a lot of organic stuff. Really, whenever I can buy organic, and it doesn't cost more than maybe twenty percent more, twenty five percent more than conventional, I'll get rid of the conventional. You know, and then I can get my price even lower on the organics. I don't have to make space for conventional or, or carry more brands. So it's it's possible at Western Market to shop almost completely organic. Um, what have your cust- What was the feedback from your customers since you've taken that path? You know, and it's an interesting question, and it's something I've, I've thought about a lot because when I started, there was some pushback that not all of our traditional clientele. So, so to people that don't know Detroit or Western Market, we're on Nine Mile on the edge of Detroit, and a lot of our clientele. Um, we have suburban and we have urban clientele and a lot of it was, um, older folks, you know, from the city, they lived in Detroit for a long time. And there was this perception that like, not everybody wanted like all this really expensive food. And if they want that, they'll go to whole foods. And I was like, no man, that place isn't convenient. It's far away, you know, and, uh, everybody wants to eat well. And it, it took a couple of years, but I really felt vindicated that like, the vast majority of our customers welcomed it and stayed on. And I'm sure we lost some people along the way who, you know, have found a store that are willing to stock the uh, uh, less expensive products. But we work really hard to have good prices on high quality food. And I, I think it's made an impact on a lot of people's lives. And you guys are also, um, you have a full service butcher. You guys butcher your own uh, sides of beef there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have a local natural program and, um, we have really good pork now. Um, we're one of the few full-service butcher counters. We do all of our own grinds in store. Um, we're stocking more uh, grass-fed and organic and, and local meats than ever before. Um, but there's definitely some still things we need to do. We, we need to add some more freezers. That's, that's one of the best ways to sell meat, in, in my opinion, because uh, less waste. You know, it's, it's, meat's already kind of an indulgent treat for me. You shouldn't be eating it every day is, is my feeling, but... Um, I, I really hate having to throw anything away. So we, we try to do a really good job to manage our inventory, 
uh, keep things really fresh but not waste, which is not the case in a lot of uh, other stores. So in terms of uh, producers, you said local natural program for the meat. Um, you're carrying a lot of organic uh, groceries. Your, your your wine selection is – are you seeking out like and meeting producers in all aspects? So when you have your local natural um, meat, did you like interview farmers and try, and come up with you know taste different meats and figure out what what's best for your yeah it's it's interesting there's not always um a ton of suppliers out there it's kind of surprising how um small the business really can be uh, especially now that some of these companies are getting bought up by uh, larger companies so you know Annie's we have a giant Annie's display for store and it's General Mills now which is you know fine I just I said didn't we didn't that. carry General Mills or Kraft but it's like Okay, well, they own Annie's now. Um, but on, on the local stuff, yeah, we, we meet a lot of people uh, around town, through other vendors. Um, our beef right now comes from C-Roy. We get some stuff from the folks over at Farm Field Table, also in Ferndale there. Um, you know, it, eggs. Uh, we have grazing fields and Tasty Fresh. So a lot of this is putting in the uh, uh, footwork, kind of going out and shopping other stores, asking people about who they know or, or, or what they want. And um, most everything is either something that I've found myself or someone has asked for. So it's, it's a very word of mouth. So if you want your local grocer to carry better food, like help them out with that. You know, like find exactly what you want and say like, hey, this is what I'm looking for and I'm going to support it. I'm going to buy it. And and that can be the little push that people need to put in that extra work. Um, so I'm interested to get back to wine. Um, so we drank this fizzy rosé. Let's pull out another one there and I want to talk about Michigan wine for a second because over the past few years I feel like Michigan wine has become more and more popular and maybe um, maybe better uh, especially in the last five years let's say um, do you carry a lot of Michigan wine and is that something that you're excited about or is it something that it needs to catch up a little bit more that is a uh, good question and sort of a complicated one. Uh, there was a couple bad vintages in a row, um, 14 and 15. Um, a lot of farms lost um, a, a good majority of their fruit, and then some of the, the actual vines died too. So so some vineyards, oh, wow. you know, that, that has to be really cold. I think it has to be sustained, you know, negative 5 or 10 degrees for some amount of time w- without an, enough snow. So snow will actually insulate the, the vines from dying. Um, so there's a lot of vine deaths. So the industry took a big hit there. And a lot of the stuff we used to carry in Michigan wasn't available. And so over the last couple of years, I kind of turned our Michigan set into a uh, Great Lakes regional set. And we carry wine from Ontario and New York now, uh, which is exciting. It's cool climate. Um, they're a little ahead of us in the industry in a way, like out in the Finger Lakes. They've been doing a little longer. They have access to New York City. You know, so um, there's there's really cool stuff coming out of the Finger Lakes, uh, and I'm excited to go on a little Michigan expedition this year and go up and see how all the 2016s are tasting, taste the new 2017s that are coming out. That's probably going to be in the uh, next month or two before it goes crazy tourist season up there. Uh, but we do have some favorites, like uh, Waterfire is, is absolutely one of my favorites. I love Waterfire. Yeah. Yeah. Their, their Sauvignon Blanc is pretty incredible. Yeah, and, and, and that's a testament to, I think, really great, organic growing can do they're one of the few organic growers oh they're an organic grower yeah not 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 certified um 
but they do everything by the organic, you know, rules. Um, they, they probably will be certified one day. Uh, and then they, uh, I think, are actually planning on going biodynamic, but it takes time to sort of kind of get your land conditioned and alive and activated. Um, so they're working on it, but I, I think it shows on the quality, and I'm excited to kind of catch up with everyone in Michigan. It's it's definitely a, a major area for us um, to to grow. <laughs> Is there? I know in the in, in the in in the bourbon world there there are producers that buy from like two large scale there's one in Indiana I think one in Canada that kind of they have a lot of juice on hand and they'll uh, smaller producers will buy from them age it themselves and sell it as their own do wine producers function that way and like in Michigan especially if you have a couple bad years how do you make up for the lost revenue well I mean the the, the basic split in the the french thinking is uh negociant which is um, purchased and vineron that like as a, a wine grower literally wine grower um and so in these bad years there was a lot of purchasing of fruit um from outside areas some people started projects bringing stuff in from um washington or oregon um and, and that can vary it could be fruit it could be juice it could be finished wine um there, there's a lot of range there um, some people up north buy from um, Berrien County and and kind of down in like the Fenville area because they, okay. they grow a lot of grapes down there, but um, not as big, not quite as big of a tourist area as Traverse City. So if you want to make a Syrah or a Merlot or a Cabernet in Leelanau, sometimes they'll buy it from Southern Michigan and get get a little bit of extra warmth down there, and make a make a better red wine. Um, yeah, it's I don't know. I, it's 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 very uh, it's a complicated business and figuring out how to make money. One of the biggest things for me is that Michigan wine is kind of expensive, but when you think about it, you know, uh, some of these estates. Uh, this bottle of rosé I have over here is from eleven seventy. Is when the estate started. So eleven seventy A.D. Eleven seventy A.D. No yeah. shit. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So 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 they sort of. Uh, they know their land. They know how to grow it. Uh, they know who their audience is to buy it. You know, if if you're up in Michigan, and you're going to spend five million dollars building a winery, and you're up in this tourist area. Like, you need to make some wine and sell it. You know, and so I think a lot of people are kind of still in that phase of like, I need to sell some wine and learn my land. And you know, if you're a winemaker, you don't really have that many chances to make wine. It, it seems kind of crazy, but. You can be at it for most of your career and still have only made wine 30 times, whereas a chef might make a dish 30 times in a night. Right. You know, so you only have like, you know, 30, 40 tries in your entire life to like grow the grapes the right way, make the wine the way you want. And so um, Michigan's always going to be probably a little bit more expensive because it is so beautiful up in Traverse City and it's a nice area to have a vacation home. And, you know, it just takes decades to really, really dial in what you're doing. Um I mean, this this German wine that we brought, uh, you know, these exact vineyards, I think, were planted in the 10s and 20s, you know, so it's 90 to 100 year old vineyards. Wow. And like, so, so they, they know what the vine needs. And when your grapes are five or six or seven years old, it's like you're still really learning how the land works, how the water flow works, how the wind works. And with the climate, you know, changing and stuff, it gets even harder. You know, because the years are less predictable. You know, a, a lot of what we're seeing now is this kind of climate instability 
where every year is up or down or it rains early or it rains later or frostier and then that, that makes it very hard for a grower to make a living. Now, this so this b- bottle here that you just popped open, you said it's from the tens or the plant in the tens and twenties. Um, this is also a Dresner. Um, falls into the natural wine category, or yeah, yeah. And so, when you have something that's about a hundred years old, is net is it even possible to say has natural wine been the the growing philosophy the whole hundred years well you figure chemical agriculture only started with um the uh the 19 teens you know kind of after world war one okay so you know i don't know what you know about the the history of chemical agriculture but not much um a, a lot of it was we learned how to fix nitrogen out of the air nitrogen being one of the main uh things that plants want to eat you know uh so we could make chemical fertilizer and these were bomb plants so we, we went from being able to make fix nitrogen out of the air to turn the nitrogen into bombs. And then we were like, well, what are you going to do with it now? Let's turn it into fertilizer. And it was like a, a, a miracle. You could just throw the stuff on the ground. Your plants grew quicker and faster and better. But over the years, you know, it, it, it causes a lot of unforeseen problems. So if you put down fertilizer, then everything wants to grow. Then you can just spray some herbicide to kill the other plants that are not the plants that you want. Otherwise, they'll suck up all the water or they'll grow too tall or you won't be able to pick your food. So you kill them. But then the bugs that used to live and eat on those plants that scared off the bugs that eat your plant, maybe they're gone now. Or maybe you're spraying a pesticide to keep away this other thing. And so you just – the more changes you start to make to the natural system, uh, it, it can have a cascading effect that's not anticipated. So uh, yeah, a lot of these vineyards have been uh, organically grown the entire time. And the wines are sort of naturally made because people never went out and bought uh, – modern machinery to chemically manipulate the wine or to filter it and fine it and then add some tannin back in and some acid back in and all, all these things you can do to sort of tweak wine and adjust it and denaturalify it, I suppose. The kind of like overarching idea here is that like these bottles that you're bringing, these natural wines are have like, it's like a confidence to them that like, you, I don't know how to even make this point like these are these are really confidently grown wines like what's in that bottle is like if you have the dresner uh, dresner on the back and no matter what's on the front like it seems like if what's in that bottle is going to be pretty damn good yeah it's it's nice having um a a few confident sets of people competent set of people uh uh pick through the wine before you you know you have good growers that have been good for years and years, uh, then aren't going to produce a wine that's bad. If it's bad, they're not going to sell it. They're going to find a way to get rid of it. Um, and then Louis Dresner has to pick it up. And then Veritas, our, our local distributor, has to pick it up. And then I have to pick it up. And then I get it to you. So it's, it's gone through a lot of uh, layers. So it's, it's fun connecting directly with growers, driving up to Traverse City, driving around, tasting wine. But, you know, there's maybe more opportunity to be hoodwinked because, hey, it's the person that has a vested interest in selling it and you, you know. So, okay, so that was going to be my question. So Louis Dresner goes around and meets. So he's pick, he there's a bunch of winemakers that want Dresner to carry their wine. Right. And so he's going to them or someone like right. a, a representative of Dresner and he's going through the first step. 
Right. And then you're saying, okay, here's the list of Dresner wines. Um, some of these taste great. They all taste good, for but I can only sell this many to my customers because now you have to think about your customer. So he's thinking about it. Dresner's thinking there's a bunch of layers going through each customer, right? So you're different than your average customer and then going to Dresner, you're different than his average customer because every customer is vastly different, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a different market all over the place and what works where. Um, so the, one of the funny eccentricities of buying, you know, Louis Dresner wine is that our our local company uh, Veritas has a lot of wine in their warehouse? They sell a lot of different things, a lot of different people, and they don't have room to stock all the things that I want. So, some of the most popular wines in New York, New York City, are sold by uh, a larger distributor. Dresner brings them to America, and then uh, the the larger company sells them in New York City, and then they self distribute some of their small and uh, uh, eccentric kind of stuff. Uh, themselves. So then I'll buy from that list that they have in New Jersey. And so we get to pick out some really esoteric wines that are hard to find anywhere in the world. You know, I, I think a couple of years ago, we had a Pinoletto from a kid that had literally one hectare. He was 24 years old and he had one hectare of grapes. So that's like two acres. Wow. And so there was probably a couple hundred cases made total, you know, ever of, of this wine by this person. And so uh yeah, and then we just had it in Detroit because we got to pick out of this cool warehouse there. So it's it's a complicated process and it's uh, a lot of a lot more work than just buying what's in front of you. But uh, it's exciting. And so when you have a wine like that, that's that special. Um, what is the kind of internal struggle you go through? just wanting to keep it all yourself versus selling it. <laughs> well, that's the funny thing about this uh, Riesling I brought, the Immich Batteriberg. Um, uh, it was shipped in last summer, uh, a bunch of wine from this producer, uh, for the City of Riesling event. And as soon as it became available to me, like the day after the event, I was like, I'll take everything. And so we took everything that came to the state, and then we got it, and we are like, Oh, this is much too good. Much, much too good. So out of like the the seven cases that we bought, we probably sold three of them. And <laughs> and the other four uh, went to Putnam's house or my house or some of our close friends. And the wine kind of disappeared off the shelf. So this is actually a, another cuvee that I was able to buy from the, the New Jersey warehouse. That's a higher end bottling uh, called Steffensberg. Um, so this is one of the three single vineyards they have. And then there's Eschberg, which is the blend of the three vineyards. And there's CAI was the one that we had. And the CAI uh, blows me away. It's it's one of the most interesting wines I've had in a long time because uh, G- Germany's not an area known for natural wine. Um, but everything here is old vine. Uh, it, it's own rooted. So it's, it's ungrafted, which is its whole own explanation if you're not familiar with that. Um, organically grown and naturally made. And uh, I'm so excited about this producer that I'm literally going to buy a pallet, at least a pallet of it for the summer. So I, I should be getting an offer sheet this week or next, and I'm going to fill out um, some paperwork and I'm going to order it from Europe. So via Louis Dresner on this pre-order. So they've already talked prices with the folks in Germany and Italy and France. They're going to give me you know, this big order book and I'm going to order stuff Direct, and it's going to take six to eight weeks to get here um, in a container. But at some point in the summer, 
we're going to get a nice big maybe 40, 50 cases of wine from this producer. But then I got to figure out how to get rid of it. And I simultaneously I like I want to keep it and I want to hoard it. But I'm like, <laughs> no, 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 I got 50 cases. I got to get rid of it. So it's like it's sometimes it's feast or famine. You know, uh, it's it's we're going to go from no in McBattery bag available to 50 cases <laughs> that I cannot fit in the building. And you need to buy some and take it to your house. So, OK, so let's talk about the 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 kind of not burden, but like the opportunity to sell something like this. Right. So at Western Market, I've noticed that you have shelf talkers and you have your face under a lot of the wines. Do you still have your face under the wines? Is that still a thing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They're, they're they're around. OK. So you have like Jared's favorite underneath. Like, mm-hmm. well, OK. So are there people that shop that? Like your favorites, one, two, do you, who writes the shelf talkers and how effective are they in the selling of wines, any any given wine? Um, It make, can make all the difference. Um, the, There's some wines that uh, don't need it, that just kind of make sense in the market. Um, there's other stuff that people would never touch unless it's explained to them. And not everybody wants to talk to somebody either. You know, I, I've learned over the years – to take the uh, uh, visual cues or sometimes the I don't need to talk to you <laughs> cue uh, and, and let people explore the shelf themselves. And I don't always need to be there. And I'm not always there. Sometimes I'm recording podcasts instead of working at the store. <laughs> and uh, um, the, the shelf talkers have – we've always written our own. Um, so for the longest time, I wrote all of our shelf talkers myself. And I, you know, it'd be a mix of research and anecdotes and stories. Um, never really about points, you know. Uh, that, that that was a big thing for a while. That points like ra- ratings, ratings, oh, points. Okay. Yeah, yeah, ninety points, ninety four points. And you know, as a joke, the only thing that ever really had points on it on our shelf was um, sherry. So I'm like, I I need a, a ninety two point wine. They go, oh, here's this fine sherry that you'll love. <laughs> and, and I love the sherry. It's absolutely not what they were looking for. <laughs> but um, and, and yeah, so it's it's more important to talk about how, how the wine's going to be used. Like, how are you going to drink it? Because we have wines that, you know, two wines that might look pretty similar. They're a similar category, similar region, but like one is just very charming and one is very challenging. And sometimes you want a wine, uh, just to quaff with your friends and not pay attention to and other times you want something to sit and enjoy by yourself while reading a book or doing work that um, challenges you and other times there's wines that need to be open for an hour or two or five or ten you know like like even this reason that we're drinking right now uh, is going to taste different tomorrow it would have tasted better today had I opened it yesterday and that's not an easy you know thing to sell to people all the time so uh, the shelf talkers have done a lot to explain that, and, and it's Putnam that writes all of them now. And uh, I, I cannot recommend enough just taking some time to go, e- even if you don't buy any wine, just come to Western Market and read the shelf talkers because they are a poetry in in their own way. Uh, he he makes up words; he doesn't really use full sentences, but he really gets the energy and the point across of any given wine. So, what is the accountability you hold to the consumer in terms of? If someone comes in, buys a bottle of wine, and they just don't like it, um, what what is the what do you guys offer as recourse in terms of like I, I know Michigan law like returns are strange right. with wine, but um, aside from that, you know, um, true story that happened this Saturday that Putnam was just telling me about today. So I I didn't work over the weekend. He he works Saturdays, and someone had bought a wine, a Louis Dresner wine, in fact. 
uh, from a producer called Louis Antoine Lute, um, a, a gentleman from Burgundy that learned to make wine in Beaujolais with some of the, you know, one of the great producers in, in Beaujolais, um, goes to Chile, makes this really cool wine called Papeño uh, out of the local grape. Paez, the mission grape, the one what, planted by missionaries. Papeño, the 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 one and a half liter bottle. Like, yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's, shit, it's, I love that wine. It, it's a one liter bottle. One liter. So, yeah. so he's on this uh, pursuit to sort of l- look for the terroir of Paez. So he makes five or six or seven different village bottlings where he buys the fruit from local people in these different villages and makes a different bottling. Well, they're all pretty different. And whether that's terroir or not, is it the way it's grown? It, we don't know. We got a pretty limited data set here, but it's exciting to explore which ones taste like what. And some of them, you know, you'd open and it's this pure pleasure from day, you know the first minute. It's this beautiful fruit and it's bright and it's charming and you know maybe there's some brett, but it ends up in this like a kind of raspberry raspberry leaf kind of fruit that that's exciting. And then other ones are just like. No, this is very wrong. Like this is not what this should taste like. And um, this is the but, same bottle. Um, di- different same. different village cuvées. No, but same label. Yeah. Well, well so they all say Papeño, but there's okay. different names. There's the um, Santuana, uh, Cornell de Male, and and they're different villages. So so there's different cuvées. Oh, I didn't know that about d- that. Yeah, one. yeah, yeah. There's the, you know we usually have about five different cuvées oh, at a time. Okay. And so Putnam would write shelf talkers that explained, okay, well, this is the one you have to keep open for three days before it tastes right. <laughs> and and if we had one that wasn't good, we would just take it down, you know, and we wouldn't sell it. But they're all good. They're just different. And so this guy, this one that he opened and he brought it back and he said, this wine isn't right. There's something wrong with it. I need to return it. And so Putnam said, come with me. And, and he goes back to the, to, to the wine office, the, the, the wine storage room, and they open it and – they taste it and it's night and day different. And the guy's like, uh, oh, um, actually, I'd like to keep this one. But I was like, I, I can replace it for you. You can you have anything you want. And the guy was like, uh, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll keep this one. So that was really exciting. The guy, he drove up to the store and tasted it with one and was like, oh, no, now it makes sense. So sometimes it's it's obstinate. You know, you have to kind of work around what the wine wants to do. And it's inconvenient and it's not a very commercially viable product. There's There's no reason why Kroger should ever put that on their shelves. You know, or oh, no. or or, or tra- even Trader Joe's. You know, like there's no way that should be on the shelf at any normal store. But we like doing that, and making the experience. So we try and find a way to make everybody, you know, happy. Um, you can only return bottles if they're uh, uh, not right, if they're flawed. And we do occasionally get people that are just not happy with a bottle, and we, we try to make it up to them somehow. You know, um, or, or at least open something with them for them to try and kind of get a better understanding of their feelings. But if you're someone that wants to try new things and learn about wine, there's always that risk, you know. Um, I like seeing movies, and there's definitely some movies I watch that were a big waste of time, you know. <laughs> but you don't know until you try it, and then that informs your next decision. So, for someone who's never been to Western Market, and they're going to come in and say they just go straight to the wine section, do they look for you? They look for Putnam. What what is the uninitiated person who knows? Maybe nothing about wine. Like, how, how do they form a relationship with with someone like you guys? And and well, I mean, uh, that, that's definitely one of the best things you can do if, if you want to learn about wine is is find find a wine shop, F- find uh, a wine person, a wine guy or gal 
to 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 build a relationship with with the store with the salesperson um and and get to learn about wine you know and and read a little online at the same time too but but really it's about tasting and tasting when things can be put into context uh, at western we sort by geography so that's like i said it's, it's difficult for some people um but just kind of, kind of pick a sub area you know p- pick a region that you're excited about um buy a a mix of different things i'm a big proponent of buying different kind of price points you know if if you're say okay i'm going to buy a six pack but everything has to be $15 well maybe buy one of our renares $6 tempranillos which is totally fine and you'll have a time when you're happy just to have something you don't have to think about and buy a 10 dollar bottle and a 15 and 18 and a 24 and a 30 you know and then kind of cost average out and try some different stuff um take some notes uh, and you know, if you find a nice small store with helpful wine people, they're kind of available a lot more than you think. Even when I'm not on the shelf or not watching the shelves and, and, and on the floor, uh, text me, call me, email me. You know, I, I have plenty of customers that, that send me emails and or text messages, and sometimes they're at the store and they're just like, "What should I buy?" <laughs> and uh, and and we're always happy to help. But I mean, we try and make it foolproof in a way where uh, we don't compromise too much i think one of the things that's important especially for novice wine buyers is to contextualize the wine experience so if you if i was to come in and knew nothing about wine and i was gonna was going to a dinner party and i know exactly what's being served but i don't tell you that um the experience that i have with the wine that you provide for that you suggest to me is going to be vastly different if i give you all the information so another thing as as a novice buyer as any buyer any consumer going into your store, provide all the information. That's something that I think is very valuable to you as the the person making oh, yeah. the sale. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, pairing with food is certainly not an exact science. Um, it's funny when people come in with super technical dishes. Sometimes they're like, "Oh, I'm making this kind of fish, and it's going to have this cream sauce, and it's going to have capers, and have this and this." And I'm like, "I have never had any food like that before. Uh, I think that this will be okay." <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it, even more than like food and wine pairing is like experience pairing. Like people reach for red wine and I will say thank you to everyone that loves red wine because you're leaving a lot of great white wine on the shelf and you're keeping the prices low. If everyone else loved white wine as much as I do, there wouldn't be any available because I, I probably drink 80% white and like maybe 10 or 15% red at home. Um, so it's about finding the right experience. And for me, most of them when I'm drinking wine, I've had wine at work during the day or it's kind of later in the evening and I want something like quenching and refreshing that's not going to give me heartburn. I don't know if you ever tried drinking red wine while laying down and playing video games or something. But uh, it, it doesn't feel great <laughs> sometimes, you know. Uh, so so I love uh, Riesling, you know, like like late at night. It's just – it's bright and – Vivacious. It can be bone dry, like the one we're drinking. It can have some sweetness to it. Um, that that's less important to me. But I, I just like that. I I'm an acid hound, you know. So so getting to know your palate, being honest about that, and not trying to like pick wine out for someone else. Oh well, I heard California Pinot Noir is what you should know, or or my boss drinks Cabernet, so I'm going to learn that. Like yeah, you can learn it, but like you do you, you know. Pick, pick out something that's, that's exciting for you to try and to learn about. So where can people find – obviously at Western Market. Where is Western Market specifically? Uh, it is 447 West Nine Mile. Uh, so we're in downtown Ferndale. 
uh, on, on the West Edge. Uh, we're open seven days a week, and we're open till nine o'clock every day, but Sunday. Uh, we do a free tasting on Thursday nights from five to seven, um, and there should be someone on the wine team there to help you every day. Not super early in the morning or late at night. We like to leave and go drink wine instead <laughs> and sleep in in the mornings. But um, yeah, c- come in anytime. And our website is westernmkt.com. And you can even email me if you want. This is J-A-R-R-E-D at westernmkt.com. Awesome. Jared Gill, thank you for being here tonight. Joe, thank you for having me. Yeah. Until next time, dine well, friends.